0: Well, hello there, and welcome to Consortio Day, a podcast about partnering with God to do sacred work. My name is John Chandler, and I'm a spiritual director, and I like to interview people who do uh, what I call sacred work, people who might work in some kind of faith-based organization or people who do sacred work as a passion project or write books or uh, anything like that about how they maintain their own care for their soul, how they maintain their own sacred connection. With God, in order to do the work that they do, and so it crosses over a lot with the work I do in spiritual direction, but also some other things I have going on that um, I've mentioned before, but I want to tell you about right now because they're really pivotal in the current time frame. Which is, I also offer some cohorts for people who do sacred work or people who are just looking to grow in their own relationship with God. Centuries and centuries ago, uh, there was something called the Catechumenate, which was. Uh, when someone was new in the faith, it's almost like they had a personal trainer who walked alongside them and taught them how to be a Christian or what what it looks like to be a Christian because they didn't really have that many examples, uh, you know, in the in those ancient expressions of Christianity. And I find that many of us now have also missed this. We've seen Christianity demonstrated in mainstream, surfacey ways, but we've not had someone teach us uh, deep engagement with the divine. And so, these cohorts that I offer are not because I'm an expert and not because I've got it down pat, but it's a chance to learn from voices of others through some of the readings that we'll do and some of the teaching that I will offer, but also to learn alongside other people. Uh, and so, this spring, uh, I am offering two cohorts. I am offering Practicing Examine, which is learning how to do the ancient prayer of Ignatius called Examine. I offered this last fall, and we just had a great time with it, and so I'm looking forward to going through it with a new group of people. And I'm also offering Practicing Sabbath, which is all about determining and and walking alongside others to figure out what does Sabbath look like for me. I, I strongly believe that Sabbath is one of the most important practices we can have as Christians and one of the most uh, inspirational um to those around us who are looking to understand what it means to live in a way that is flourishing. So, both of those are available now for registration. They both kick off next month. And so, if you're interested, you can go to formationcohorts.com and learn more about what is going on with those. Also, be glad to answer any questions you have. You can fill out uh, the contact page on my site as well. So, formationcohorts.com will take you straight to the page. Uh, where you can see some of those and learn more information about each of them. All right. I'm excited. This was a long time coming. I first emailed Steve Cuss about being on my podcast, I think like last May, and it just took a long time to get it scheduled. He is a busy guy doing great work. And so I was glad to be patient to have this time to sit down with him and have this conversation. If you are already familiar with Steve Cuss, then you are already looking forward to this conversation, I expect. And if you're not, I am glad to be able to introduce you to him. I think he is doing really important work and is one of the most important voices for leaders in both the quote-unquote secular marketplace and faith-based orgs today. He does a lot of work talking about uh, what it means to recognize your own anxiety. And I strongly recommend his book, which will be mentioned in the podcast, called Managing Leadership Anxiety. I, I think it's one of the most helpful Books on leadership and bringing honestly, bringing your faith into your leadership that I've read. So here we are with Steve Cuss of CapableLife.me. Well, let's uh let's jump in. Great, Steve. I um I really appreciate the work that you do, and so I invited you on today, uh, because a I want to make sure that as many people as possible are familiar with the work that you do, but um also because I anticipated you would just be a great conversation partner for the kinds of things I'm trying to talk about because I really want to have conversations with people about just good, deep interior soul level work. And it's apparent to me that not only are you passionate about helping other people have those conversations, but I sense you've probably done your own fair share.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, you can normally spot people who have had some pain in their life. They just show up a little differently. So yeah, i definitely... Done my fair share of the of the di- you know deep digging for sure. Yeah,
0: you know, you just reminded me. So i I previously did a podcast called Sermon Smith for many years, and w- there was one phrase that always stuck out to me uh, from Matthew Woodley. And when I interviewed him, he said there he said the phrase "There is an authority that comes with suffering," hmm. and I can't tell you how many times I've hearkened back to that. And you just hmm. reminded me of that, and I think. You know, knowing a little bit of your story from your podcast and your books, um, that makes sense. I think maybe some of your own authority in this area comes from your own suffering. So, rather than dance around it, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Tell us about your what I call your sacred work. Tell us about the the work that you do.
1: Yeah, the work that I do now um, is I try to help leaders locate their anxiety mm-hmm. first. And that's not as easy as it sounds, right. uh, particularly when leaders are Type A or entrepreneurial. You know, you know. I know you're a former church planner, John. Like that kind of ministry tends to the modern. The modern church tends to attract the entrepreneurial yeah, leader, yeah. and so I'm trying to help those leaders locate their anxiety so they don't get in the way of what God's doing and don't get in their own way and that's hard that is hard to do and then once we've done that i try to help those leaders help their people locate their anxiety and what tends to happen is leaders prefer the second step you know of course over the first step and that's the work i did um in my own life and I, i i went into a kicking and screaming for sure i you know i was pretty young i was 24 when i started that work and i was forced into it not against my will but um it definitely caught me off guard when I discovered that I had a shadow side and a, a deep well of insecurities and triggers and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's the work I do now. I'm still a pastor. I work at a local church. I love mm-hmm. the church I work at. But but my full-time vocation is now yeah, helping leaders locate the anxiety in their organization
0: okay yeah i, I didn 't even realize you were still a pastor. I thought you had moved on to do what you 're doing now full time so
1: I do what I do full time and i 'm a part time associate pastor at the church where I used to be the full time lead pastor gotcha so yeah, I met with my boss yesterday, our new lead pastor, wonderful uh, young leader, much younger than me it 's actually really fun he He has much less experience than I do in lead pastoring, but he 's a phenomenal leader it 's a pleasure to uh, work under his leadership, but uh, yeah. yeah, I'm still still kicking around this place. Yeah, well, that's I've, that
0: seems like a really healthy thing. Tell tell us about um, tell us about your journey into this this kicking and screaming. And I know you've shared this, you know, you shared this in your book, and uh, I've heard you talk about it some on your podcast. But just for a little context here, tell us how you became aware of the role anxiety plays
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah i grew, obviously i'm an australian i'm not uh, american and aussies as a general statement we we all work hard to look relaxed that's how i would describe <laughs> us and and some of that's true in many ways we are pretty laid back as a culture we're not easily frazzled and but we like to we like to be relaxed and so I came into Bible college believing that about myself. And then I graduated from Bible college believing that about myself hmm. plus having a Bible degree. So so I was a young white male leader with theological knowledge. Yeah. I was what I tend to call one of the most dangerous people in the world. <laughs> you were equipped to do everything, right? You yeah. Know, you, I think you take an unaware white man yeah. and give that man power and give that man theology, and yeah. boy, if he's not aware of himself, he can do real damage. So yeah. I think God could see what was going to happen, and, and by happenstance, uh, because I needed to work for one year, uh, this uh, opportunity opened up to be a hospital and trauma chaplain and hospice yeah. chaplain, and so that's where I ran headlong into myself. Uh, I, I just say it this way, John, um, trauma and death are like the crucible, but also the catalyst, to really get you to the end of yourself. And so in my first day on the job, I got to the end of myself in two hours. It took no time at all. It just put me in a room where somebody has died and everybody's screaming and no one knows what to do. And yeah. suddenly all that Aussie pretense and all that veneer, it just got completely stripped away. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you just think you're fine and then suddenly you're naked. Uh, that's, that's chaplaincy. And it happens every day of a chaplain's life. And, uh, you know, since that one year, I've studied the industries where people help people in vulnerable situations. So chaplains, counselors, social workers, but also like Red Cross critical incident disaster Hmm. relief, that category of people. And what we all have in common is we've all been trained to restrain our impulses. It's fascinating, John. And that was the gift that chaplaincy gave me. It taught me. That my implic my my impulse to do something might actually be the worst thing to do, and if I can actually notice that impulse, stop it from happening, examine it, then I can be an effective chaplain. So restraint becomes your primary skill set, and then the surprise of my life was that that all. Was informative as a pastor as well. It turns sure. out that that pastoring is almost as traumatic as death. Um, and I don't say that tongue in cheek. I'm actually quite serious. Like yeah. I thought, well, now that I'm a local lead, I'm a local suburban pastor. Like, how bad can it be? Oh, <laughs> chaplaincy was much easier than being a local lead pastor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, you describe that,
0: but you describe how you came face to face with it, even by witnessing the trauma of others. So, how did that? How did that help surface it in you, you know, even in that early stage?
1: You know, we all have so many things under the surface that we don't know that we hold or that hold us. And uh, the way I'm talking about it nowadays is it's like we have these beliefs that are deeper than our belief in Jesus. And I don't say that with any shame or guilt. Right. But I assumed because I'm a follower of Christ in youth group. I was, I used language like sold out for Jesus. Right. Then I gave my whole life, my vocational life to Jesus. I've put money and time into following Jesus with Bible degrees. And sure. so, therefore, I presume that my deepest, core belief is my belief in Jesus. And it turns out that's not true at all. I've got deeper beliefs that when I'm under pressure or when I don't know what to do, these deeper beliefs actually become my primary beliefs. And so, one simple example, John, would be I believe that if I'm to be okay, I must make other people feel okay. So if somebody mm-hmm. is hurting, yeah, I must anxiously make them calm down so I can be calm. Now there's yeah. no way I could have said that. That took a lot of this deep work we talked 24 about. Twenty four year old Steve couldn't say that. <laughs> couldn't say that, right? Um but you know, most parents know what this is like. If if you've ever raised a child and you're in a supermarket and your toddler throws a tantrum in public. Um, you anxiously are trying to calm that toddler down so you can be calm yeah. because you're worried about what other, you know, other parents are circling, praying the prayer of the Pharisee. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not like that parent, a sinner, you know, so parents know what this is like, but it turns out that all of us have these deep beliefs. So one of them for me would be other people must be well for me to be well. If they're not well, I must make them well. When I cannot make them well, that means I'm stupid or incompetent or blank. And that belief. Comes to the surface in chaplaincy when people mm-hmm. are screaming at the top of their lungs because the yes. loved ones died. Yes. And so that's the kind of word that would be one of literally, I mean, literally 50 examples. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. That, I, when I was 24, I would not have had the capacity to have that level of self awareness, yeah. I don't think. Um, I certainly probably would not have been a good chaplain. I still wince at things I remember doing in ministry when I was 24 and maybe yeah. even 34. So, I, I wonder what your journey looked like then
1: to develop this level of self-awareness. It's, it's a great question, and it's certainly not because I had some special gift or personality. I, just like you, uh, the first 12 weeks of chaplaincy, I was kicking and screaming the whole time, but this particular model of chaplaincy is called clinical pastoral education, Mm-hmm. And it it is a curriculum. So, yeah, yeah. so the whole idea is rather than tell you what to do, they plunge you in to do. No instruction, no guidance. I never was told how to be a chaplain, not once in my whole year. So they just send you into the wards. And then every morning for an hour and a half, you de- debrief in a peer group. So there were six of us chaplain residents with two supervisors, and we'd all sit in a circle of eight of us for an hour and a half every morning. And it was in that group work that you discover yourself. And sometimes your peers and your supervisors help you see yourself in a very gentle way and sometimes very aggressive way. And so that hour and a half of reflection and debrief and then going right back to the wards for hours that day, that process every day is how I got to
0: Yeah, it requires that uh, it's uh, I mean I think I had a similar experience later in life, you know, you talked about you talked about those of us in ministry and our capacity to do things. Um you know, I I did my graduate work at Mars Hill Grad School or Seattle yeah. School where yeah. you know, the the psychology program deeply informs the theology program and so we all had to go through counseling practicum and I think, you know, my learning from that was All of us are going into ministry for healthy reasons and unhealthy reasons, and it's really, really helpful to see that. So, I mean, this seems like a really obvious question, um, but I just like to hear how people articulate it. What role then does partnering with God play in your work?
1: I think that's such a great question, actually, and And for me, I I was just listening to an interview this morning, actually driving home for the interview with you, John. And it was David Letterman with Neil Brennan. Neil Brennan is not Mm. as known. He was Dave Chappelle's comedy writing partner for those who don't know him. And he hosts this podcast called blocks and, and they're, they're talking about, it was interesting, you know, two guys that I don't believe have any kind of Christian faith talking about how do you actually believe that you're loved? That was the. Talking. Wow! Yeah. yeah. And Letterman was talking about, um, he's like, you know, the way it used to be is I get out in front of a crowd of 400 people every night and if they laughed, I'm loved. But then even after they laugh, mm. I go home thinking I'm not loved. And Letterman said it wasn't until uh, I had a child, my son, Harry. Hmm. And what happened for the first few years of Harry's life is I tried to entertain him at dinner the way I used to entertain people on the late show. Until I suddenly woke up one real and realized he doesn't need me to entertain. He just loves me because I'm his dad. I, I was almost crying just listening. Wow. Yeah. But, but what those two guys were trying to do is figure out how to receive unconditional love without any kind of gospel. Yes. And to me, I, I just, I really felt like, man, it, this, I hope this strikes you the right way. I thought, how can I call these guys and share my faith? Because <laughs> I think I've stumbled onto something that they need, which is. The center of the universe is love. The very heartbeat of the universe is love, and His name is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I don't have to look anywhere. So, to me, I, I can't fathom how to do any of this work without the foundational, visceral knowledge of the unconditional love of God. I just think it's it's yeah. the beginning and end of all of it for me.
0: Yeah, because it, it, it requires so much of you, right? And how can you do that work if you're not loved yourself?
1: I mean, I, I don't know how I could walk into a room with an actively dying person without knowing that God is in that room with me and with us. Yeah. And so therefore, it's not my job to comfort these people. It's God's job and it's my job to partner with God. Mm. Like that's so much more relief. Like, hey, I don't have to do anything. I just have to attend to God who is doing something. Yes. And then it feels the same. Like I'll be preaching uh, a week from Sunday for our local church. And when I walk out to that pulpit, feels the same to me. Like, I don't have to do anything. I have to be attentive to God who is doing something, and that sometimes means getting out of the way and dying to my need to be impressive or funny or, or all of the pressures that go with being the former lead pastor. Sure. Uh, and yeah. then, of course, our current lead pastor, Zach, he has work to do as well. When the guy that used to do his job is now up there, um, he, he's got that same work to do. So, it is it is an active work for sure.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I would even imagine now when you're doing the teaching and the training and that you do just around anxiety work, that there are certainly more than enough occasions where you share this work and people take it in and receive it and it's life-giving. But I would imagine it's also very provoking for some people and you get your own share of blowback, pushback, even from that, where needing to know you were loved by God, even just you're presenting this seems critical.
1: That's a that's a really interesting observation. I am embarrassed that I get very, very little pushback. Hmm. Um I was so used to a lot of pushback as a lead pastor. Right. And uh now that I'm doing this work, I I, I think John, it's because my primary client, so to speak, is a lead pastor. Right. And they kind of see me as a relief valve for them. And yeah. I'm, I'm obviously safe. You know, a lot of times I have confidential conversations with people. And sure. So I get such little pushback. I, I was in a room this fall with a bunch of guys from the Acts twenty nine tradition, the mm-hmm. the Hill Church tradition. Yeah. Uh overwhelmingly reformed, complementarian, yeah. and they were amazing. Um, spiritually hungry. I, I mean, I'm an egalitarian. Yeah. I'm theologically moderate. Yeah. Um, I'm not reformed. My tradition is not reformed. We couldn't theologically couldn't be, well, not further apart, but we're pretty far apart. And these were, um, hungry brothers who were longing for what I was sharing. And we had a, a rich time. So I, I would have thought that if I was getting any pushback, it would have been in that room. And yeah. instead, I just found fellow sojourners. So yeah. That's um, that's encouraging. It, it is the the pushback I'm getting is from the busy leader who keeps burning their staff out and burning themselves out and is too busy on the treadmill to stop and ask why. That, but there's not many of them nowadays. Hmm. Um, I think COVID humbled a lot of those yes. those guys. Yeah. So I I feel really spoiled.
0: Yeah. Well, that's I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Well, that being the case, you know, tell us about your own. Journey. Tell us about your own personal or inner rhythms. To you know, because because again, now you're in a place where, um, if you get that kind of praise all the time, you could easily just ride on that, right? So, <laughs> what does it look like for you to stay connected, just to, to continue to experience God as your primary source of love?
1: Well, gosh, I mean, I think once you've fallen into grace, it's hard to look for it from any other source. It feels to me like i don't know how i don't know what the right metaphor is, but it's like oh man i have I have laid bare my soul is laid bare in front of the God of love who has seen it all and loves me anyway once you get a taste of that that 's all I want like it really is so i don't and and i'm fifty one i'm not a lot of that ambition, and you know when I was in my thirties. Yeah, trying to help a church grow, there was a significant percentage of me saying, when's Catalyst Conference going to call and invite sure. me on a stage so I can point to God and pretend yeah. that I'm, you know, that kind of, I, I don't know that I have much of that left in me. Yeah, um, I also don't want to make it sound like I've arrived somewhere. Now that I'm an obscure person doing public work, that brings its own, challenges of when is God requiring me to market myself and when should I trust God to open doors and because so for example I'm not very well known most of my work is behind the scenes and under the radar that's great with me all I want to do is help people and put food on the table I don't have any real interest in for example being famous right actually sounds like bad news to me (laughs) Um, but there's still a little part of me that's like I wonder if I should be doing more and then attached to that is some kind of ambition i think to be known and loved so i don't know that i answered your question very directly
0: <laughs> i can i can reask it but i i like the thread you're going down here
1: yeah if i'm not hitting it yeah ask it again and well, i'll see if i can be more I'm, pointed i mean i
0: like where you're going here i'm 52 so i'm i'm much wiser than you i've got a year yes, on you <laughs> right. yes you're way ahead <laughs> but but i am curious about what you just named because uh, you know I, I i've had a little bit of a parallel experience myself of in your 30s there's this imagination to be known to share all of your wisdom yeah um and yet it, you know my perception of you would be you're doing much more meaningful work now um and and it's not ambition that's driving that work but but there is some sense of calling or some fuel of vocation yeah, that is pushing that work forward. How how did you? What was the process that shifted in you to go from ambitious Steve, who wants to share his church planning wisdom with the catalyst audience, to content behind the scenes Steve, who wants to help pastors?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, and I, I would just say, John, I don't think my work now is more meaningful or impactful. I just think it's no longer local. That's yeah. the only difference I see. So the work I do internationally and with my book is almost exactly the work I did in my local church and still yeah. do. I This coming Tuesday, I will be with a group of, I think, 18 students at our church as we go through my tools. Uh, we're going through over a year. So I think what happened there is I happened to get a book published, which itself is a bit of a miracle, and then COVID hit. Yeah. And my book became known. Yeah. Um, but in, internally, what I think what happened is in 2011 and 2012, I'd been the lead pastor by then by for seven years, and our church was really on the brink of closing. Hmm. Uh, I remember we were interviewing a worship leader, and he came to candidate. That Sunday, so he's up there w- leading worship, and yeah. then after he's candidating, I get up and basically announce, "Hey, we're right on the brink of closing. If people don't give more," <laughs> and then said to him, "All right, let's go to lunch and meet the the candidate committee, like, and see if you get a job." And he's like, "Get a job? Like, can you even pay me?" So, <laughs> I think that 2012, 2011 era definitely helped me realize, look, this is all about faithfulness, not success, and we are working hard and doing our best and the outcome is in god's hands so i i think that was helpful for me yeah but what's also true john honestly if the church had closed i would have felt like a failure i would have sure. had regrets so that's sure. true too yeah
0: yeah all right so now i'll go back to that original question like just i mean really practically in this season what is your day to day what is your week to week look like for your own spiritual rhythms like how, yeah. how do you how do you Keep, your pl- keep yourself where you are in this healthy place or, or conceiving, per- perce- perceivably healthy place.
1: Yeah. So, my primary tool of spiritual health with God is my life-giving list. And it's simply a list of the people, the places, and the activities that either help me feel fully loved or yeah. connected to God in a meaningful way. I have, I've been working on my list for a number of years now. So, I have 160 items on my list. Hmm. And so, the traditional spiritual practices of gathering with the saints, reading my scripture, prayer, those are all on the list. Yeah. But so is, for example, well, lighting a candle, which I have right here. There you go. To remind me of God's presence. Um, Stopping to rub my dog's floppy ears while he moans with joy. Yeah. Now, I don't. On my list, I don't uh, rank activities. Mm-hmm. So I'm not suggesting that rubbing my dog's ears is as important as reading scripture. But I try to uh, participate in 12 to 15 of those a day, yeah. of, of those 160. And so that means that some of the things on the list should only take a few minutes and some of them need to schedule time and money. Uh, so some of the items on my list are very grand. Maybe I could do them once in my lifetime. Hmm. Uh and then some take a few days, and then there's probably eighty of those things on my list that take a few minutes. Yeah. So Twelve to fifteen of those. So some examples is I try to read my scripture every day. Yeah. Uh I get a B minus in that. I try to talk to God and listen to God every day. I think I'm doing well in that. Yeah. Because it's less structured. So I do I do better at unstructured things. I'm not a very structured guy. Um, my dog forces me to rub his ears probably literally fifteen times a day. I, I think I've, I've <laughs> the only counted as one though, right? I think I've accidentally created an addict. Um, but what I do when I'm rubbing my dog's ears is I'm just giving thanks for my dog, uh, thanks to God. And so I find myself worshiping more intentionally. I've, I've lowered the threshold of worship awareness in my life. That's been the gift yeah. of this. Yeah. Is I keep tripping over God's goodness multiple times a day. I listen to five minutes of stand-up comedy every day. Yeah. I think laughter is a gift from God, and ministry yeah. is so earnest um, my wife's all over my list, so just some of the more g rated things would be just <laughs> the first time I see her every morning the just holding her hand, um, yeah. and so the more I do these things, the more i 'm thinking God, the more I feel in tune to God. That would be the most practical thing I do, yeah, uh and then weekly it just becomes the more intentional rhythms that you don't always do daily um and so I, I've fallen out of a habit of spiritual retreats, but I used to be much better at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that I'm starting and running a small business, those have fallen away. And the other thing, John, just to be frank, is I travel so much for work. I'm inclined to not get away when I'm home. Right. Um, so I'm I was going to say
0: you're 45 minutes from Rocky Mountain National Park.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? I used yeah. to go out there just to write sermons and... Um, but I'm trying to be home when I'm home. And so that has dented my ability to get away for soul care. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, talk about the, uh, what I love about this idea of this life giving list is, uh, you know, a a term came out of my mouth when I was in spiritual direction, receiving spiritual direction, not offering a couple of years ago called gritty sacredness. Hmm. And the idea of, engaging the sacredness even with the gritty moments of life you know it's it's not all this high you know deep moments of solitude although those kinds of things are good but appreciating like you say with gratitude the sacredness of so many things that are available to us in the day-to-day so how 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 did your how did you become aware of the need for that you know of these things are life-giving to me and i need to celebrate them and be very intentional about them.
1: Yeah. Uh, 2016 uh, was when I, I started working on that. I, I went into my first ever sabbatical after, what is it, yeah. 22 years of ministry. And uh, our church, did, we, we don't do sabbaticals. So this was our first attempt as a church to do sabbatical. And what does it look like? And mm-hmm. so we did a ton of planning, which I'm really grateful for. And so my elders really challenged me, look, what what brings you most life? And I realized that serving learning and playing. Those are the three things I love to do. When I serve, I feel connected to God, when I'm learning about God and when I'm playing. And uh, so that was the um, theme of our sabbatical as a family. It was beyond magical, it was unbelievable. And out of that, I I was like, well, how do I keep this going? And what if my life giving, what's life giving to me? Let me put those on the list. Let me formalize it because I'm an unstructured kind of guy. And then I realized, look, I'm not good at creating new habits. What if I just baptize the habits I have? Yeah. Because I love listening to music and I love playing music. I've got a guitar just right there, ready to pick up. And you know, three to five minutes of playing guitar um, helps me worship God. It doesn't take long. So I realized, oh, if I actually pay attention to all the good things God's already given me, that's where I can start. And all I have to do is rather than just playing guitars, just add this one discipline of thanking God. Not just for this guitar that I can afford, but that God created human beings to be moved by music. That's unique to humans. Uh, cats are not moved by music. I, I was just in <laughs> Western Australia where, where I grew up. I just came back a few days ago and we spent a night just on the beach staring at the sun as it sank into the ocean. And it was incredibly moving for all of us. Now, yeah. my parents cat does not stop and do that because right. the cat is not made in God's image and we are. So I got fascinated by. What are all of the things that God has given us because we are image bearers that maybe we're squandering? Maybe God's kind of in the GK Chesterton idea. God's given us these delightful, whimsical gifts, and here we are earnestly trying to rescue people from hell and right. uh, squandering God's goodness. So that's 2016. I, I got fed up with being God's employee more than God's child, yeah. and that was the turning point, uh, and that changed my life in a lot of ways. Yeah.
0: And when you say playing, you don't just mean playing guitar, I, I assume. I mean, you mean playfulness. Yeah. Playfulness. Dan yeah. Allender would be proud of you. He talked about play so often in my grad school classes. Um, Dan Allender
1: is a phenomenal human being. Yes. And um, systems theory that I've been trained in, of course, Dan would know all about systems theory. Systems theory, a, a core element is playfulness. Yeah. In fact, evidence that an ang- organization is anxious is how much earnestness is in the organization. So it's a it's a big tool in psychology.
0: Yeah, and briefly describe what you mean by that, earnestness is in the organization.
1: When people are easily offended, that's uh, when you go, when a system series goes into an organization to measure the anxiety, which is one of the things I do, how easily are people offended and um, how imaginative are they when they're stuck? So, when you are stuck on a problem, like in our church, how do we turn this kitchen into a cafe? we were stuck so when i say stuck on problems that would be a problem we were stuck we couldn't solve this problem but we were earnest we lost our imagination we couldn't see outside of our own limited solutions to this problem so earnestness is a lack of imagination a high level of offense and then you're also measuring the laughter is every when people are laughing is everyone laughing together or is somebody mm-hmm. laughing at someone else? So you're mm-hmm. looking at where's yeah. the laughter flying around? And so, um, this, the safest way to be playful is to be absurd. Um, and so what that looked like for me when I was a lead pastor is we would give away prizes every staff meeting to our staff. We'd have like this goofy staff member of the week kind of thing, but it wasn't yeah. serious. Yeah. It was more like the office, the Michael, um, the the dundies or it was more in that spirit and i remember one week we had no money as a church so i just gave away produce i gave away a letter <laughs> and a bell pepper um it's absurd and uh but everyone was laughing because no one's being laughed at right uh that's playfulness right so so my i feel like as the dad in my house my chief job is to be the chief of playfulness in the house. Yeah, And I'm the youngest born. So that comes naturally to me. I'm a pot stirrer and I like to have fun or I don't like to pay my bills. So that works. I can do that. And so I believe my job as lead pastor, particularly because I have so much power as lead pastor, was to be the chief of playfulness. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have this question on here. Do you have hobbies that you think are important for your health? But I think you might have just caused me to rephrase that question for future <laughs> interview because it because really it's about play right it's about yeah. you know what what does it look like when you play
1: yeah it has it to be unproductive play has to be unproductive yeah and and just look at toddlers and children they just play for its own reward yeah uh, and again i'm I'm thinking of chested and i saw you nodding um it's mm. my all-time favorite quote where he says what if our father is younger than we are because he doesn't get bored by monotonous play is a paraphrasing chesterton but he chesterton says we have sinned and our sin has made us old and we have this playful father so that's the key aspect of playfulness is it should be its own reward it shouldn't be to further the cause or the mission um that's a key piece too and
0: so so what does playfulness look like for you outside of the professional setting just for your own self
1: yeah. My life-giving list has a lot of playfulness on it. It's it's enjoying a meal, a particular kind of meal. It's yeah. something as simple as if I'm going out to lunch with a friend, I'm going to spend five more dollars than I would normally spend because I feel rich. Because at lunch, I'm usually in a budget mindset. What's yeah. the cheapest I can order? So just indulgence is a good sign of playfulness. Hmm. Um, but absurdity um, is a lot of it. So for me, music is its own reward, fly fishing.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: I, I mean, I do think with all the species of trout and every trout being unique, you can't find two trout with the same spot pattern. Yeah. I think that's evidence of God's whimsical playfulness, for sure. Mm. I've gotten to go scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. I'm very spoiled as an Aussie. Sure. And you know, when a clownfish comes right up to your mask and kind of looks at you curiously, like, I don't know, that's the, that's the whimsy of God. Yeah. Um, But also, I'm always trying to make my wife, like one of the things on my life-giving list is my wife's belly laugh. She has a belly laugh where she's uncontrollably laughing that is absolutely intoxicating to me. (laughs) So, part of my life-giving goal is to try to make her belly laugh every week Um, because I get the benefit. It's kind of selfish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I don't know if that's a specific enough answer. That's, that's great. That's great. Yeah. How, I mean, I'm just trying to,
0: you know, my hope is that someone else can hear this and go, oh, what, what does playfulness look like for me? How, how do you know when you're not doing well?
1: I'm not doing well when I when somebody asks how I am and I don't know the answer, hmm. which is my default. Um you know, because I am, I'm now seen as an expert in this field, I can see why people would assume that I'm always in touch with myself, but my yeah. default is to never be in touch with myself. Yeah. So that's one sign I used to like, let's take my wife, Lisa, who is an incredible, incredibly good at getting people to be human in front of her. Yeah. Um, 10 years ago, if she'd said, Steve, how are you doing? Cause she would notice something about me. I would say, I'm fine. And I'd press on. I've learned to say, I don't know. Yeah. And then I would press on. And now I'm learning to say, I don't know. Let me wait until I know. And waiting sometimes only takes a few minutes and sometimes it takes deeper work. Um, So that's one sign I'm not well. And then the other sign is I usually need people to tell me when they see that I'm not well. Yeah. Because I am very driven entrepreneurial. Go, go, go. I've always got more projects than I have time for. And I'm motivated by that. So I usually need friends and family to say, I don't think you're as well as you think you are. And then I have to believe them rather than get angry or defensive or dismiss them.
0: Right. Yeah. Which is really hard to do.
1: It's really hard to do. Because it slows you down from all
0: the things you want to accomplish as an entrepreneur. It's getting in the way
1: of, I already feel pressure. So now you're adding more pressure to me. Yeah. Uh, Most people would say the way they know I'm not well is I'm distracted. I'm not present to them. Hmm. And I'm irritable. Uh, there's a little, there's an edge has shown up in my way of speaking and being that wasn't there when I'm well. That's usually their signs.
0: Yeah. yeah. And and how many people do you give permission to speak that into your life? Like, th- there's a lot of lead pastors who don't have people around them mm.
1: who could speak uh, that to them. So, how did you create that circle of people? started giving my kids permission when they were nine. Yeah. I would say to my kids, Hey, I don't always know when I'm not well. So if you see that you think I'm not well, if I've come across to you in a way that's really aggressive or something, I'd really appreciate you telling me and I'll do my (laughs) best not to punish you for helping. You know, that's the other challenge, of course. Um, on my staff, we at the, at the height of my staff, we had 36 staff members, probably 20 something of them had that permission. We had a lot of interns, a couple of the, I wanted to have a couple of interns have that permission because I didn't like the idea that just because they're, yeah. A young college kid, they couldn't. I had two interns take me up on it on a regular basis. Um, and then uh, all of my elders, so that at that point, I think there were seven people and probably another 30 to 50 in the congregation. So so there's layers to this, John. Like th- that's, what is that? Maybe let's say that's 80 people. Yeah. So out of the 80 or so that had that permission, probably 12 in reality would yeah. take that permission. Um, One of the gifts in our church is we have a rotating eldership. So, we have a number of former elders or alumni, and uh, many of those would still happily do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's one thing to tell somebody that um, when you wear the title of lead pastor, it's another for someone to feel enough safety to be able to do that. I mean, it's probably a lot of work to even get that dozen people to be willing to do
1: it. You have to if you're the person who has the most authority you know authoritative whatever the right word is power in your organization, yeah, you have to celebrate it and model it, so I would try to be very present or present tense with my stories to my whole staff, yeah, hey, I just want um here would be an exact example uh i've I've told you guys that if you see that I'm not well, would you please tell me, and I'm just really grateful actually this week Jimmy sent me down. And showed me some things. And also Avery, who's an intern sat me down and I'm grateful to both of them that, cause that helps me. Yeah. So, and I know it takes a lot of courage for you to do it. So I want to thank you for doing it. I want to, and what I do when they, when they sit me down is I try to say, if I'm well, Hey, I appreciate you pointing it out. It would help me if you see it again. You, you don't owe that to me, but I'll work on it, but please do tell me again. And I've had that happen too, particularly with some deeper patterns in my life. I've had people have had to tell me three or four times before I'm able to really break that pattern.
0: Yeah. I I recall, I'm kind of skipping back here, but I meant to ask you about this earlier. Um, But I'll ask this and then I'll get to my final question. But I recall maybe a year ago um, on your podcast, I believe you talked about you were going through the spiritual exercises. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Might need to hear more about that.
0: The like the Saint Ignatius spiritual exercises.
1: I was in a Ignatian prayer group for a year. Yeah, yeah.
0: What did that? How did that go for you? What did you take away from that? I think Ignatius has so much to say
1: to us. Today, oh my so I'd goodness! Just be curious to hear what your experience of that was. It was the best. Uh, that would be yeah. my shortest answer. It was <laughs> it The best. Um, I was familiar with Ignatian spirituality and very attracted to it already, and practicing some of it. Mm-hmm. I've gone to. um some monasteries and things over the years. Uh, I've, I've chanted. I, I don't know if you've ever done Gregorian chant, but it's... I have not. I never imagined that. It's on my life-giving list, I'll say that. There's a, there's a monastery an hour north of my house where they chant seven times a day, hmm. and it's incredible. So I, I had a working knowledge of it. I wasn't in the habit of it when I joined the Ignatian Prayer Group, and I'm not in the habit of it now, and that probably right. says a lot about my need for structure. But... um, it was great because I had one-on-one spiritual direction, and then I had a small group. In my case, they were all men, and then we had large group teaching in a rhythm over a year. So, yeah. it was just what I needed, especially that was the year I was transitioning after a quarter century of pastoring full-time. Right,
0: right. Yeah, yeah I mean, I th- I think that's the beauty of the Ignatius stuff is— it is something that you can do on a more intense level you know the spiritual exercises i mentioned earlier are designed to be a retreat that can be done in 30 days or over the course of a year but it's designed to be more intensive but hopefully you take something away you know from it after it's not like you, it's it's likely not sustainable for most people you know the pace of it so yeah but i'm sure there's still much you took so final question for you and then well there will also be a practical question just about how can people keep up with the things you're doing, but who do you hope to be in 10 years?
1: I don't know. I don't, um, I, I don't give thought to that question, which probably exposes something in me, hmm. but um, I don't spend time wondering how to improve yeah. or what the impact on my life will be. So my my immediate reaction to that question is more based on bread and butter what I hope to be doing. Yeah. And uh that shouldn't surprise I mean, I'm an Enneagram three, so that's that fits. So I don't know who I want to be.
0: Yeah. What well, I mean, what do you hope to be doing? Like how how do you see the ministry you're doing now
1: growing in relevancy or impact or yeah. meaning? I, I will say it exposes in me that I don't believe that more effort necessarily makes me closer to Jesus. Yeah. So I I think I want to be the kind of person I am now. Um, I hope my character is as intact and important to me as it is now. Yeah. Um, especially now that I'm becoming a public figure and I'm traveling more, that's really important. But what I hope to be doing is bringing relief to Christian leaders that are doing important work. That's what yes. I hope to be doing. But at, beyond that, I don't, I don't really care how many uh or what that looks like. But if I can bring relief to Christian leaders doing good work, I'd be th- I'm I'll be thrilled.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well I, I mean I first discovered you, I think um I think Steve Carter had you on his oh, podcast yeah. early on. He's and fantastic. then fantastic. Yeah. And then Shane Blackshear had yeah. you on his podcast Shane was part of our church in Austin. So oh, I know yeah. Shane well. Great but guy. Yeah. But Shane, this is high praise from Shane, because what I recall, this is a long introduction to what I'm getting to here, (laughs) is I believe Shane said um, your book was the best leadership book he'd read or the leadership book he appreciated most in his intro. All that to say, yeah, just tell us a little bit about your book, because I found great value in it as well, and just other ways people can be connected with the work you're doing.
1: Yeah, sure yeah and that may not be high praise from Shane, because I think he publicly hates leadership books, so he does.
0: well, that's yeah. why it's high praise though, because he oh, would not okay. be inclined to lead them.
1: Read yeah. them yeah interesting. <laughs> yes, so what my book is designed to do is help leaders realize that you can be exactly human sized, and that's all God ever needed out of you. Most leaders are trying to be superhuman, and it's wearing us out, and then the second thing my book is trying to help leaders do is make sense of the dynamics going on in your organization that might be driving you crazy, Hmm. that my theory that I've been training can help make sense for you. Yeah, Systems theory helps make sense of relational patterns in any organization. So those are the two things the book does. And then beyond the book, whether you want me to zoom in or come in person and teach, or whether you want to access, I have an online community, and it's it's simply self-paced learning. It's kind of, I've, I've remodeled chaplaincy in the online digital version. So you log on, you watch a 10 minute video at your own pace. You do a self assessment and then you go and practice. Then you come and watch another one do a self assessment. Um, and that's the best work I do actually. It's, yeah. it's also the cheapest work. It's the cheapest way to, to benefit from what I do, uh, because reading a book won't change your life. Right. You, ha- you have to go try things, observe yourself, debrief. And so my online platform provides all that for you. We do monthly Zooms and stuff like that. And so that's the best work. And all of that, you can find all of that at my website at stevecusswords.com, whether it's yeah. the book or my deepest stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate the playfulness of using your last name. Oh, yeah. Cusswords.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got There's nothing we can do about the name. So we got to have fun with it, I guess.
0: No, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, you do intense and serious work, and so I appreciate that you don't you take the work seriously, but you also couple that with playfulness in a way that I think is what makes the work more accessible
1: no. you you know what's so funny. Um, I did a series of videos for right now media in November of twenty twenty one twenty twenty two Gosh, that was only I, two months ago. That, that, that <laughs> can't be right. I must have lost the year. But some No, I did lose a year. I did this Right Now Media videos. The whole experience was incredible. The film team, Right Now Media, they were all amazing. But what was also true is I'd just gotten back from England. I was jet lagged and I was overwhelmed. And I tried to push the video schedule back three months. And for their own reasons, they couldn't do it. So my best self did not show up. And if you watch those videos, you won't find a more earnest, serious Steve. Hmm. And it, it's really hard for me because if you come to my workshops, people are laughing hysterically. When we talk yeah. about anxiety, I'm giving away naked Nicolas Cage pillowcase covers and uh, Fred Rogers heat-activated mugs, where his suit coat becomes a cardigan when you drink coffee. <laughs> because one of the best antidotes to anxiety is playfulness. And so I bring the playfulness with me. And these right now media videos, I'm just mortified by because they're so earnest. Hmm. And it's because I was trying to memorize, I think we did 14 videos in two days and I couldn't, yeah, without a teleprompter. And so the job of keeping all that in my head stopped me from... I don't like how I showed up, is what I'm saying. So sure. I guess that's why I'm somehow weirdly apologizing now on this podcast. Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm sure Right Now Media really appreciates you <laughs> selling it this way.
1: Well, people love them; like they're, they're yeah. getting great feedback. But I'm like, oh my goodness, if if I come out, you'll get a whole different side of me than yeah. what you saw there. So yeah.
0: Well, Steve, thank you so much for uh, for meeting with me today for for sharing about your journey. Uh, um, I, I really I really think you. Not only doing the work that you've done personally, but sharing with others. is I mean, you know this better than anyone, but it's so needed and so necessary right now. I just, after being in ministry myself for many years, I know that all of my pastor friends are just feeling the weight of this time. And I think the work yeah. you're doing is a gift for them. So, thank yeah. you for that.
1: It's its the honor of my life that I get to do it. So, John, this is a really rich conversation. Thanks for having me on.
0: See what I mean? That was great, wasn't it? He's such a thoughtful guy, but he's done such important work um, on himself and therefore passing it along to others. Just one more reminder here at the end that formationcohorts.com, if you're interested in practicing examine or practicing Sabbath, those will run throughout the spring. And I would always be grateful. I haven't been asking for this much, uh, but I'm reminded it's beneficial to ask for iTunes reviews. So if you'd be willing to jump on iTunes or whatever uh, platform you use to listen to podcasts and help others find the podcast, I would really appreciate it. Thanks so much.